0: Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, October 2nd, and we have a great guest. I know you must get bored when I say that because I think a lot of these guests are great. I don't always say great. Some of them really are stupendous. This guest was so good that I said, after the show, I asked him if he would be willing to be interviewed because I'm writing a second book. And uh, he said, yes, and I'm very happy about that. So I was a little dubious about the name of this book. And when I read, like just looked at the cover quickly, I was like, "Eh, I don't know. The name of the author is Brad Stolberg. The name of the new book that he has written is called The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes your soul. Now he was also the co-author of a previous book called Peak Performance, and I always feel like this. There's like this. Um, I don't know this. This crazy amount of energy that we put on peak performance, or let me be more productive, and I. I don't know. I, it's a lot of pressure. Maybe I just want to kind of move through my life and be okay with that. And everything doesn't have to be the peak, the best. So um, we start the interview today with Brad Stolberg talking about his previous book, Peak Performance. So here is part one with Brad Stolberg. Tell me first about Peak Performance and what that book was about.
1: I'm glad that you started here because I, I basically had to write my books in reverse to get to the practice of groundedness, which is the the new book. And mm-hmm. here's why. So peak performance is everything is clicking. You're on top of your game. And there is so much BS nonsense. I like to call it bro science out there. Yeah, I hate when that. It comes to When it comes to peak performance. Mm-hmm. Hacks, optimize your life, 10 supplements to become Superman or Superwoman in 10 days, on and on and on. And the goal with peak performance was to provide an evidence-based approach to what to do when you're on top of the mountain and ideally how to stay there. When everything is clicking, peak performance makes total sense. I completely stand by the work in that book. It's bulletproof. Mm -hmm. It's defensible. I wrote that book when I was younger. Then I had an event in my life that really shook the base of the mountain from underneath me. And I realized that while those principles are great for when everything is clicking, If the top of the mountain, and obviously we're talking in metaphor here, the top of your respective mountain, it's not as durable or sturdy or solid if it's not built on a really strong base, hence the practice of groundedness, which is all about building that foundation, building that base. And it's often the base and the foundation that gets neglected when things are going well, because it's a lot easier and um, perhaps more fun to focus on bright and shiny objects all the time
0: which is why it's funny you should say that. I'm just going to relate this to almost like being an investor. It drives me insane when people will not look to the downside when things are going well, and they will only freak out when the market has melted down. I'm like, isn't it easier just to look at what could happen when you're on top and fix it then, than wait till the bottom falls out? I mean it just stands to reason but it is hard if everything is clicking unless you are a neurotic Jew like i am from the northeast it's hard to say what could possibly go wrong <laughs> when you're up there do you know is it necessary to do that kind of inventory if you're up on the mountain
1: we're going to use all kinds of metaphors today jill so we're going from mountain climbing back to investing okay so a point that i make in the practice of groundedness drawn from investing is regression to the mean is real. You are going to have highs and you are going to have lows, but there is going to be some sort of average and the trend line always drifts back towards average. Lows don't last forever, neither do highs. I think that the way that you want to approach building a high performing life is to try to raise the mean. So over time, the mean gets a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. You still ride the highs and have a lot of fun and show up get through the lows, get help when you need to. But if the mean that those ebbs and flows are returning to inches up over time, much like investing, that's how you build long-term gains. What I argue in the book is that's how you build long-term gain across any area of your life, happiness, health, fulfillment, relationships, and of course, money too.
0: Um, It also reminds me of working out, which is something that I do. And I'm a, a, you know, an old aging collegiate athlete. And I think that one of the things you learn when you work out as you get older is that, you know, you can't necessarily do the things you could do in the same way. You don't bounce back the same way. But if you kind of stick with it and you, you know, sort of cultivate a, a life where this is important to you, that you'll find that things kind of like they stay pretty good right and I laugh at myself sometimes because uh, I'm a peloton writer and so when I do these power zone classes they talk about like you know the reason I think I like them is that you only compare your against yourself not against anyone else And I think the the real tricky emotional trap that we can fall into is the mean is your mean. It's not the mean of your cohort. How do we help people not look to someone else to define that part of you that you want to raise up?
1: I'm really glad you asked. This is such a high stakes question and such an important skill to cultivate, particularly now. People have always tried to portray themselves through rosy, tainted glasses out in the world with the advent of the internet and particularly social media, it is easier than ever to do so. Instagram quite literally has a function called filter. So there is both a literal way to filter how you look. And then of course, a selective filtering of someone's life. And if we run into the trap of comparing ourselves with how other people portray themselves, We're trying to live up to a bar that is mostly an illusion, and we're going to burn ourselves out and make ourselves exhausted and miserable trying to do that. Mm. So I like to think about shifting the dashboard from external to internal. So an external dashboard is very much comparison to others. And it doesn't just have to be on the internet. It can also be job title. Am I a VP or am I in the C-suite? Did I win the gold medal or the bronze medal? Stuff's important, but I don't think it's healthy when that stuff's the driver. Whereas an internal dashboard is about knowing your core values. What are the things that you really value in your life? And then doing what you can to practice those values day in and day out, because you have full control over that. And what I argue in in the groundedness book is that paradoxically by showing up and focusing on your internal dashboard, the external stuff tends to take care of itself. Back to the mountain. There are two ways to climb to the top of a mountain. One way is constantly obsessing about the peak, thinking about the selfies that you're gonna take when you're up there, worried what will happen to your self-worth if you don't make it up to the peak, if you have to tell everyone, oh, I didn't make it. Another way to climb a mountain is to be where you are, to really focus on what you're gonna do today on each individual pitch, really on each individual step, and to enjoy all the life on the side of the mountain and to enjoy the view. Both climbers can get the same result. Both can make it to the top of the mountain, but the texture of the journey for the one that is present and patient is so much better and so much more fulfilling. And even if you're only performance mindset and you say, Brad, stop with this woo-woo stuff, I just wanna be a great performer. (laughs) Well, that second climber is going to be a better performer because they're going to have a greater reservoir of energy to to draw from. Like it is not sustainable. It is so utterly exhausting. I'm convinced even before COVID, it's why everyone's freaking tired all the time, is because we are constantly trying to measure up to like the Joneses, but now it's the digital Joneses with filters. Mm, and it's uh-huh. absolutely impossible. And it's everywhere. It's so I mean, I wrote this book. It's something that I struggle with because it is so ubiquitous in our society right now.
0: This book is so personal. And right in the beginning, you really come out and say, I was blindsided by obsessive compulsive disorder. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and what that meant to you, this, you know, wonderkin kind of author and researcher, how this book came from that period of your life.
1: I had written peak performance And it had turned into a bestseller pretty quickly. And the manuscript of another book was already done really out of nowhere. As you said, I got blindsided by OCD, which is highly misunderstood. Um, No male intentions. It's just the way that it's portrayed in the popular culture. So people hear OCD, they think of someone that is really organized. that's a clean freak. And that is not what like clinical actual OCD is. So first the definition, OCD is having intrusive thoughts or feelings, becoming extremely anxious about those thoughts or feelings, and then trying to do something to make those thoughts and feelings go away. So it's a very human cycle, except on OCD, it's complete overdrive. Hmm. So I was bombarded by this... At the time, I thought it was very odd. It turns out to be a very common OCD theme, but I was bombarded by thoughts of meaninglessness of life. So, really tough stuff. At first, I thought I was like depressed and like I need to be treated for major depression. What made it OCD is that those thoughts, again, they were accompanied by a lot of anxiety. And then my compulsion, the C part, was not visible. It was all internal. I did everything that I could to assure myself that I wasn't actually becoming depressed. So I'd spend hours and hours Googling the symptoms of depression. I would read countless philosophy books searching for the meaning of life, which, by the way, like it's, it's an unanswerable question.
0: I was just going to say, <laughs> would you like to share?
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, but, but that's the thing, right? Like now, after a lot of therapy and treatment and, and really being on the other side of this, For the time being, at least, I can laugh at that. But in the moment, the stakes feel like they're everything. If I can't figure out this question, I can't get out of bed. That happened more or less overnight, Jill. Like everything was going really well. I had a panic attack. I never had a panic attack. And then I became just absolutely obsessed with why was this happening to me? What does it mean? Am I going to die? If I'm going to die, what's the point of living to begin with? And these thoughts completely consumed me hours and hours a day. I became scared to drive a car because I thought I'd drive it off the road. It was really, really bad. For a good eight months, it just completely uprooted my whole life.
0: Wait a minute. So I got to go back. So you're perseverating around this. This is going like, it's literally infecting your whole being. And it took you eight months Like, what was the tipping point where you said, did someone say, did your mom say like, honey, you're not yourself or a a partner or, or was it you? You were, did you just surrender? How did it, how did you go from that, that state to getting help?
1: I'm glad you're asking clarifying questions. So I got help really quickly. It took eight months to get better.
0: Okay. Gotcha.
1: So I am very fortunate. Like there's never been stigma around mental illness in my life or in my family. And because I'd like to fancy myself as a pretty self-aware guy, I knew something was wrong. So after about three days of this, I came home and I told my wife, like, something is wrong with my brain. I'm trying not to freak out, but I need to see a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And I was in a psychiatrist's office a week later. And I'm very fortunate that the psychiatrist I saw just happened to have expertise in OCD. Cause what often happens, particularly with this theme of OCD Jill, where like there's thoughts of meaninglessness and in, in, in self-harm, is people are misdiagnosed with having really severe depression, suicidal ideation, and they're put into an inpatient treatment program for depression. Yeah. And I thought I needed that. I said, like, I don't trust myself, I'm not safe. And that's when he kind of laughed at me and said, Oh, you're not depressed, you just have OCD. Because that is what characterizes OCD is and I've learned all of this through the treatment. Traditionally, depression presents and like the thought of harming yourself relieves you. Whereas with OCD, you're terrified that you're even having the thought to begin with. I remember my shoulders just dropping because I thought like my brain was broken beyond repair. And when he said those words, you have OCD. First off, like so many people, I was, I thought OCD was washing your hands all the time. I had no idea that it was this broader pattern of like intrusive thoughts. And then when he said that this is a very common theme and there's a treatment mechanism that's really hard, but also really effective, that's what got me on the way to healing.
0: And so on the road to healing, you wrote about this um, for a magazine. Was it that article that led you to think about the practice of groundedness.
1: Precisely. So that article, I I have such visceral memories of the decision to write it. I was in Virginia on what was supposed to be like a little vacation with my brother, and I was in a pretty rough spot with OCD. I was probably four months into treatment, but there were still many rough patches at that point. And I opened up my uh, my computer in a coffee shop. It was down by the graduate school. I had an email from this guy that was like a 25 year old that said, you've know, you got everything together, how do you do it? I wanna be like you. Mm. And meanwhile, I am just completely falling apart. And the cognitive dissonance that I felt between how people looked at me and what was actually going on in that moment was worse than the OCD itself. And at that point I said, I either need to write about this and eliminate that cognitive dissonance or I just need to stop writing. And my therapist said, like, well, if you stop writing, that's just letting it encroach on one more area of your life. So why don't you write about it? And the worry with writing about it was never like, what are people going to think of me? I mean, my ego is way too big for that. Even back then, I don't care if if people want to think poorly, whatever, screw them. It was in the perverse mind of someone with OCD. I was scared that if I wrote about it, I would somehow be like exerting control over it or saying like, I've got this under control, I can write about it. And then it was going to come back to get me even more. In the language of therapy, it's called exposure therapy. You do the things that give you anxiety. So my therapist said, great, this is like the perfect homework, go write an article about it. And let's see what happens after.
0: Can you talk a little bit about this moment we're living in this um, nearly God willing post COVID moment? There are so many people who are out there and they feel dissatisfied for the first time in their lives. They actually had a moment to actually breathe and maybe even say, I don't like the way I have been living my life. I think that you called it heroic individualism and I call it like, get me the blank out of this. Like I can't get myself out of where I am. And this Crazy, horrible virus has taken people, I think, to a different place. And what is it that they're finding? They're finding, you know what, I'm, I actually wasn't very happy before. So, can you talk a little bit about this moment and why you think that the pandemic allowed this to occur for so many people?
1: It gave people a space to be with themselves, to be in their homes, to be with their families, their partners, their communities in a way where so many of the things that we use to distract ourselves were eliminated. Mm. And when that novelty was taken away, it's almost like we've collectively gone through a year long meditation retreat, (laughs) you know? And when you sit through a year long meditation retreat, a lot of stuff comes up. And my hope is that in a post COVID world, This provides a jolt to a lot of people's systems where they can re-examine that internal dashboard their core values their priorities how they spend their time and energy realize that mortality is a thing and build lives on the other side of it that they can be more satisfied about
0: okay i know i left you wanting more well you're going to get more with brad stolberg tomorrow Until then, if you've got a financial question, anything on your mind, just go to jillonmoney.com, click the contact button, and we will help you out. Don't forget to tell us if you'd like to come on the air live. That would really be helpful. Also, put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. It'll make you feel good. It'll make that person feel good. Thanks for listening. And don't forget the mantra, grit, growth, grace. We'll talk to you tomorrow.